Welcome to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My guest today is Denise Bruder. Denise is a hybrid work skills expert and founder of Sway Workplace, a New York City professional training and coaching firm that focuses on driving performance for workers that are united by purpose, but not always location. Today, we are going to discuss the adoption of hybrid work models, how to ensure remote worker productivity, and the future of jobs. Denise, welcome to the show. Tim, how are you? Thanks so much for having me on. It's my delight. Thank you. Um, Many of the companies that sent workers home during COVID had, up until the crisis, policies or cultures that forbade working from home. It was an exodus, not a migration, mandatory, not desired. Even so, it seems like remote work is here to stay, with COVID mostly behind us. Office attendance today is roughly, depending on who you ask, about 30% below pre-pandemic levels. Denise, now in the latter part of 2023, do you think this is a stable ratio or do you see a trend to or from the office? So I always have to like kind of temper myself down here because it just seems so obvious to me that that ratio is going to continue to lower over time as we get better at it. But I'm reminded by some great people that are around me that not everyone thinks that way to be a little more generous with the conversation and patient with it. Uh, but from my seat where I sit, I it, to me, it's as clear as the sky is blue that this feeling constant flexibility is already the norm. It's already the norm in our hearts and minds. And it's hard to reach people there, very hard. So when you do, you can't really excavate it, not when it's happened across the board and at the same time for such a large group of people. So this momentum of new way of working because it's so fundamentally important to us personally is shifting this into normalization with the future. So data, of course, is new uh, with a level that I think is pretty much consensus on the, on the time spent in the office right now. But I think as we get better, as tools get better, as you become less afraid and more hopeful and begin to really look at this as what it is, a more intelligent model of work for the future, we're going to really embrace this at scale, and it's just going to become more. Are companies that embrace remote work mostly going hybrid or completely work from home? The if it was a bell curve, I know, you know I'm going to kind of like generalize here just to give like the dartboard because the data points vary by who you ask. But if this was a bell curve, there's two distinct tails. One tail is the remote first means. Generally, that is. Uh, startup companies and or some progressive companies that have taken their relatively smaller headcount and switched the remote only button. On the other tail of the other 10%, you're going to have those folks like Goldman Sachs that kind of move forward with this, where are endeavoring for full in office. And right in the middle, about kind of 80% or the most of people are embracing this feeling of hybrid. So that's some time together some time apart, and the balance depended, of course, on the company's choice. So we spent 100 years or roughly perfecting uh, life in the office, working in the office, and now suddenly we're trying to perfect working remotely. What behavior changes has your firm uncovered that improve the productivity of remote workers? Interesting you mentioned, it is a 100-year evolution here. Um, and you know, we, for historical context, in fact, um, Perkins was announced as the labor secretary. Not only she was the first female labor secretary back in the 1930s, but she came in as a workers' right advocate and she saw industrial workers that were floundering 
in the state of war, overworked, abused. She came in and she kind of leveled the playing field with this concept of the eight-hour workday uh, and all these other kind of work protections are still guide the way that we were. We did that 100 years ago to enable us to really level the playing field and modernize the world of work. So, Tim, here you and I are, like right now in 2023, having the same conversation about how we, again, adjust the knowledge worker and shift our behaviors and norms to move us into a new way of working for the next however many years. So, you know, the answer to your question is, you know, there's a lot of, we believe it was, a, if E equals MC squared, there's a formula we can follow. And it is that the shift of behaviors is 50% mindset, changing how we look not only at ourselves, but the world of work and our approach to it. And it's 50% a mixed bag of skills and techniques, which together create the new norms, which is that kind of invisible glue, the stuff you don't really find in a policy or a handbook, but it's that invisible kind of option in the air that pulls a team together when they're working together, but physically apart. I think that's the real kind of concoction of a formula we're working on. So managing remote workers can be un unsettling because one of the markers of productivity, which is actually being present and seen to be working, is absent. I'm not arguing, and I know you don't, that that's a great measure of productivity, but nevertheless, in its absence, how do managers know their teams are being effective? Uh, that's a fabulous question. And it's, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the shield most people are kind of hiding behind, fighting at each other with which is this idea of, you know, protect productivity at all costs. But in all the rooms I go to, Tim, when we speak with people and ask questions, there is never one consistent or really good way of saying, well, how did we measure productivity and outcomes in the past? Other than that Reddit 360 review that happens once a year when people who don't want to take time to fill out these arduous forms of feedback on each other. Is that how we're measuring performance and outcomes? There is no one good way that's been done. That's why this whole period of time, Tim, is crazy cool because it's shaking us up and forcing us to look realistically. We're going to begin to measure the things that we value because we value what we measure. So looking at this the other way, um, how do individual contributors know they are doing work of value and that it can be seen to be of value? How, how do I get ahead as a remote worker? So that's a really good question to ask because it's, it's data-orientated and it's factual. And it's like, what am I doing right now today? And you know, our whole vision at Sway to enable flexible work at scale involves closing the gap between when we work together, but we're physically apart. So we came up with, and we're very data oriented and driven because we want to make sure that we're, we're measuring for the right things and training and coaching the right way. We ask people 10 questions before we meet them. The same 10 questions that we ask of everyone, it allows us to take equalized temperature. One question we ask is, are you, do you have goal clarity? As a hybrid or remote worker, do you know what success looks like in your role? Do you have what you need to get there? And are you cl really clear on your goals? And resoundingly, it's a yes, which I think is fantastic news. Yeah. That means that the average person has not lost sight of what they're supposed to be working on and in a sense for how am I going to get there. So that's a huge positive checkmark, huge checkmark. Unless so we, we've eliminated that as, a, as an issue you know, for folks that are working in a remote basis. Um, but other than that, I think it's really about communication. At the end of the day, it all for us all comes back to communication. And how do we reimagine, for me, if I'm a, wor a remote worker, how do I see here and value my teammates, my customers, and my stakeholders 
when we're working together, but physically apart, we were so used to doing it in a traditional way. Yeah, it sort of reminds me, uh, my day job is at a university, and, and during COVID, one of the things that happened was just about every course had to be online suddenly. And we had online courses before that, but it really uh, forces you to deconstruct what's going on in the classroom. There's so many things you do unconsciously. And that have been that, that when you went to school, this happened. So when I teach at school, I do the same thing. Um, but you really have to be much more mindful about all the feedback loops. So I, I like what you're talking about, especially with the point of driving home the mission or the goals. Um, that's really key. One of the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And you're, I just want to pick your point there about feedback loops. I mean, from all the work that we do, it is like that's probably the number one thing that we, we advise is next actual next step in that uh, one of the constraints between the manager and their team is actually the feedback loop. And I don't necessarily mean the formal one, like here's a formal memo, here's our formal one-on-one -on -one every week, or here's our team all hands. It is that juicy stuff that flows between people in informal ways, you know, whether it's office gossip, you hear about something coming down the pipe with a product in, in the lunchroom. Whatever it may be, it's that informal spinning of information and data between people in the relationship building that's completely just been sucked out of the whole system. But I don't know if we knew we relied on that so much to create the connection points between each other. I mean, was it ever really the water cooler or was it that? You know, so and, I, and so one of the things we always talked about, particularly to anyone that needs a team, is rethinking how you establish those informal feedback loops, not only create those pipes of communication, but be really aware of what goes through those pipes, how frequently it goes through that pipes, and how we're making the connection points between people. So it's, it's oftentimes the relaxed informal stuff that really helps us move, stuff, move our projects forward. Okay. So this, this is fascinating. And I, I did want to ask about that because it's really hard to reconstruct that. Um, you know, what, one of the great things about working from home is you can kind of organize your time better than having people lean in your doorway all the time. But the flip side is everything is structured and often with multi-parties, right? So how do, how do you advise managers to even allow people to have that time and find that time for themselves? Well, at times it can just be within the actual format of a meeting. And it's about being, well, a couple of techniques. Um, one is the Microsoft calls it digital lingering. We think it's a great term. You know, it's like just maybe toward the end of meeting, you know, we're so conditioned to say, click, got to go. I've got one and a half minutes before another two-hour meeting I get into. And I got to try to eat lunch in between the one and a half minute. So it's about kind of structuring our days intentionally and building in just a little buffer time. So you can sort of lean back and just some people kind of hang back. And maybe you're going to talk about a little more softer about the objectives or talk about something personal that you knew your teammate did last week or over the weekend. So it's just the same thing as if you were walking out of a conference room after an in-person meeting. You know, it's that point between conference and the elevator where a lot of great stuff is talked about. So how do we do that digitally by being comfortable being online? Even our body language, leaning back in your chair can just tell somebody something so different rather than being like this. So there's a lot of just verbal uh, techniques that we can use digitally to attempt to kind of recreate that uh that feeling of connectivity, but knowing that we're constrained because we're digital, not in person. Okay, I'm going to try that. I haven't. Uh, I've uh, my uh, my reaction if we have ten minutes left in a meeting slot is to say, "You're welcome." Here's ten minutes back. 
but I like it. I'll, I'll put my feet up and, and invite, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the weather or something and what's going on in the other departments and that sort of thing. So it's something interesting. It's like, it's like getting to, how do we get to, how do we recreate the social connections mm-hmm. by getting to know people? And that's really what it is. If I feel seen, heard, and valued, I'm likely to linger with you and share something personal and or share an early thought that might prevent a problem from happening next week. So to create that space for that organic conversation to kind of arise, you have to be intentional about it. Well, this is wonderful. This is like a free consultation with the founder of Sway Workplace. So I have I have another question that is all about me, but I'm sure some right. will benefit from. Zoom fatigue is real. I get that. But even so, I prefer a full Zoom meeting where everybody's on Zoom over a meeting where some people are on Zoom and some people are in person. I, 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 I struggle with that. And it's tricky because generally meetings are structured by subject matter. You do your best to have the same people with the same subject matter, one be home and one be at work because you, you don't want them both to be absent for whatever. So you wind up with almost inevitably, now that we're in a hybrid mode, you're going to have hybrid meetings. Do you have any advice for me? I find them very hard to organize, to, to, to feel as engaged with the people who are on the screen as in person. So everything is a trade-off. Traditional work was a trade-off. We know that because now we realize we're aware that, oh my God, I have to get up and get fully dressed and get out of the door. I never even thought about the fact that I used to do that five days a week. That was a trade-off. Everything. Work is imperfect. It's never going to go right. But there's a lot of value to be had by showing up in the way you want to show up. So I say that because hybrid ways of working is also a trade-off. It's just a different set of trade-offs. Now, the reality there, Tim, is that we are learning and have to learn these new twitches and muscle fibers about how it is that we naturally work with people. So we do a lot of our work also in a hybrid fashion where we're in a room with people and we have people online as well. And we think deeply about experience equity and ensuring and making sure that everyone's getting the same level of value in the work we do with them. You could apply that to a meeting that you're having. Um, The one caveat I will say is that not only are we stuck because people are trying to copy and paste this traditional way of approaching work and drop it in here, our technology generally also is not even up to par for where we need it to be. So, you know, when you have one flat Zoom screen in a conference room with three or four people there and you've got people, you're naturally going to engage and look around the room here because you're energetically drawn to them. There's more energetic transmission of information happening by body language, verbal cues, and people are not saying that you're picking up on uh, so readily that may not be coming through the screen. But when we are there, we're role modeling behaviors of being as naturally inclusive as person on the screen as we are of asking questions of people that are right in front of us and encouraging that dialogue. It's entirely achievable and attainable. We are getting there is just a new muscle that we're building. So what we do is we we advise people to pick that one thing that they want to work on, perfect it, and move on to the next. Like one change, one new habit at a time, and then move on. And don't forget, Tim, that if you are role modeling that behavior, I mean, that's how we hit exponential change. Denise Berger and Sway and my team, we're not going to fix this world, flexible work, but we are going to make a dent by having exponential impact, by teaching people how to role model these behaviors. They, they impact 10 more people, and they impact 100 people, and a 1,000, and so on and so forth. So role modeling, one change at a time that matters to you right now, is how we shift into these new ways of working. So 
um, in the same vein of learning how to do things uh, remotely or hybridly, how do companies effectively onboard, train, and develop people? I guess develop. We already talked about a little bit, but onboard and train. How do you how do you get people who are working remotely uh, to get the same experience? So onboarding is an interesting thing, an interesting area that has to be completely reimagined with a hybrid age. Um, and there are cases where people can be onboarded in person. There is connectivity that happens if you're closer to an office. But if you are if you are fully remote, the one thing that, of course, we make sure is that everyone understands. Um, one obvious one is having a, a buddy, having that accountability buddy. So we find that in work we've done, uh, one person said to us, uh, you know, she said, I'm kind of new at my job. I've been here for a couple of months. Um, I'm good at my job. I know what I'm doing, but I have to close the gap on the institutional right? I just don't have. And she's like, I'm burning through my social capital so fast because we felt that she, she was pinging this person and pinging that person, slacking this person, emailing this person to get these little bits of information to build up her institutional knowledge, but she was burning the, the social capital she'd only begun to build. So we rolled what we went through a scenario like, well, what if I knew how Tim likes to communicate? What if Tim was my main go-to guy? And I've been pinging him sporadically, but we've had a conversation. I know his communication style is I'll give you one hour on a Thursday, gather up all your information, let's you and I work through whatever questions you have to really transfer that knowledge to you. It's how I work best. And now that I know that, I will shape my time around that and shape my approach. Maybe I still have to ping you if there's a fire drill or something I really is really urgent. But if I can get that block of information from you in a way you and I have agreed on, then we fired out our issue. And not only that, but I've probably already improved social capital between us. So somebody new coming into an organization, if that's kind of on their checklist of here's how you onboard yourself in the moments where our program may not be needing what you need, that's a way to move forward. And it goes back to your point earlier. All of this, Tim, is reimagining how we communicate when we're working together, but physically apart. I'm I'm really enthusiastic about the buddy idea. Um, knowing that there's somebody who's been uh, declared as that person you can go to for sort of the institutional knowledge i think that's that's really intriguing i'm i'm the wheels are turning there for sure um remote work is often framed as working from home where home is still within commuting distance of a shared office that's not true for everyone though with a growing class of people who remote work from just about anywhere how do you see these digital nomads impacting companies well, when I come back in my next life, I'm going to be a digital nomad. I tell you that I've got three kids that are anchoring me down right now. But in my next life, I see, I see the palm trees in the background. <laughs> see, yeah, this is my inspiration every day. Digital nomads, for sure. Um, you know, as a percentage of the working body, digital nomads, of course, are a smaller percentage that have no connectivity to a physical office, and that, of course, that's just a whole. That's more in my mind a lifestyle. Uh, been nominally fantastic wives all not without us challenges of course um but to have zero connectivity that could also be a person that's on one side of the country and somebody's on the east coast versus the west coast somebody's in europe versus the u.s we have been digitally nomad and disconnected that way at global companies forever that's something new to us um but the idea about the digital nomad uh there is just a whole different kind of host of reconnection onto your team in terms of understanding how they work best. So one thing that we kind of help people understand is if you are that person 
and you're coming into a new team and or a new project, there are two things that we, one thing you can ask and one that you, you can give. And the ask and the give are similar in that if we establish at the very beginning our kind of protocols for how we work together, and that can include what technology do we use to do our work instead of guessing, developing like almost like what's our communication charter. Now, what I mean by that is Sway is an example. Me and our team, we use 10 tools for techno- for communication. And we know when we use them, why we use them mm-hmm. in duration of time. So if we email each other, as an example, we know it's like 24-hour window. But if we text or call each other, we're like, oh, something fell over, something's on fire. So because we have a under- common understanding of response times and the, what tools you use and how to use it, we've eliminated so much friction Again, I'm going back to that word and how we communicate. So if you're a digital nomad and you're disconnected, that's one of the greatest things you can know about your team and offer up to your team about how you communicate and work best from the beginning. So I, I love that, but I noticed that there's a bit of tension even in that answer because on the one hand, there's how you personally best communicate, and then there's also the culture of the organization. I guess at some point you just have to fit, but um, you know, the, I've I've had conversations at work where it's like, well you know, when do you want an email? When do you want a text? And when do you want this? And when do you want that? And for me, at least, I agree. Like the the urgency, uh, it's it's not just urgency. It's now as opposed to later when you get a text. Like ask me trivia about, you know, what's going on with this project or whatever. Don't assign me something in a text because it's among a thousand texts. And if I can't do it right away, I need an email. <laughs> like save my life here. I, I, I emails my checklist in, in many ways. Oh my gosh, totally. So, and it's a paper trail. Yeah. So we, you know, our agreement as a team is that we use email for long form, asynchronous communication that's detail orientated and forms up that paperwork, that kind of like paper trail. Right. Of, of, of instructional and directional. But a text could be like, oh, hey, did you see that email? Can you take a look at it before three? Because we know this is something urgent. So, we've used two forms of communication for the same thing. Um, but we have consensus on why we would do that, which is so funny because I was onboarding recently. Uh, person helping us out with some marketing stuff at Sway. And I had this conversation with him. I'm like, how do you, you know, can I call you? He's like, ooh, mm. no one called. I said, like, ooh, so I won't do that. Is somebody in the hospital? What's going on? Yeah. Exactly. He's like, but you can definitely text me. And wouldn't you know, because I did have to call him, now he calls me. He wasn't comfortable with it at first. I love it because I hear the voice. I can hear different things of what people are saying. Sometimes you need to break that ice with people as well. But we have our rhythm and our form now that works for us. Yeah. I was joking with my son the other day that, you know, in the future, we'll probably be able to beam thoughts to one another. And we'll, and then my son will be like, I remember when we took the time to text. <laughs> um, that's my, that's my next thing. Yeah, I'm working on telepathy. That's, that's, the, no, next, that's the next sway invention is going to be telepathy right. at scale. Um. So that what's good for the goose is good for the gander, I guess, in that, you know, it would be nice, uh, you and I both sort of pine for the remote, uh, the digital nomad life. But when you create that possibility for yourself, you create a similar possibility for your employer to get into gig work or offshoring work. Do you see a lot of that happening, being made possible by this more digital friendly, remote friendly workplace? Yes, and I'm glad that you brought that up. So a lot of our work at Sway is focused on uh, the where and the, the where and the why, the where and the how, and the where and the when. You know, if we're changing where we work and when we work, well, how do we do that? 
that's super tactile. That's kind of our bread and butter at Sway in, in our kind of training programs because it's where we are right now. And we have to get this right soon so we can move into the other and prepare for the other significant issues that are approaching the working body, including AI, freelancing gig as an example. So this is interesting thing, Tim. Like it's like, you know, so the third rule of physics, equal opposite reactions, that if I am an employed person with an, I'm based on right outside New York. I'm in New Jersey, an hour outside New York City. I'm working at a firm in the city of New York. I'm traveling there maybe three days a week, two days, whatever it may be. But they see me and we see each other. We have a relationship. And they understand how I work and I understand how they work and we have a relationship. When you become fully remote and or digital nomad, there definitely is this possibility that, that relation, the nature of that relationship changes. It doesn't have to. We can become transactional particularly for kind of roles that are transactional in nature, like you might look like a coding role, for example, can be super transactional, independent, uh, individual contributorship. If that happens, you really then become a global employee, which means that your employer potentially could look at it as a global talent pool. So then if I'm based in New York and there's somebody based somewhere in a lower cost region in Asia, and we're kind of comparable in skill set, who is that employer going to choose? At the end of the day, Tim, Employers are running a company, and today, their priority is meeting numbers, orderly numbers that weigh on people to meet. They have to go for the lowest cost. That's a natural evolution. So I think there is this bubbling sense of risk that gig and temp gig work can become a major component and part of the body of, of, of the workforce. And what does that do for us then in the higher cost regions? based here in the U.S. or via vis-a-vis the potential competitors that you could eventually have. Then you drop AI in there to sweep us all out. I mean, there's just a lot happening. Well, I think it comes back to what you were saying earlier about the the importance of making that connection between people. The, you know, you've used the word relationship several times. The, the, if, you are, if you treat your job transactionally at home, then there's a chance you'll treat your job transactionally at the office. But if you if you really do connect with the other people you're working with, there's a there's a shorthand and a culture that develops that you can't easily outsource. I mean, it's always possible, but it's harder to. Yeah, yeah, it most certainly is, and you know, that's kind of one of the shifts that we have to be aware of, um, shifting the transactional nature and whatnot. Because then again, you're right when that evaporates, then what is the connective glue? What is tying me and my loyalty and allegiance? Is that valuable anymore? Or is it just really about getting the lines of code in or getting that project in? Then best case, who can do it? So um, let's say I struggled to think up with a think of a decent example. Let's say two mortgage companies, new mortgage brokerages are, are opening up. And one is getting stationary and office space and, you know, uh, reception desk. And, you know, they're going through all that expense to assemble a physical location. Versus a company that, you know, it's de novo, like it's completely out of thin air. They can hire people online. They can consolidate the work online. They can reach out to their customers online. The, the cost base is so low. It's, it's like, a, it's just add water. It's an instant company. Are, what kinds of companies would you advise to go that route? Like, is there a certain type of, uh, is it creative industries that need to be more coalesced around a physical location? What do you, what are you seeing as far as who you advise go ahead and do it all online versus uh, no, you really need to get together. 
So the evolution of the open talent economy has really come far in the last couple of years. And open talent is code for, you know, it's an umbrella term for, for gig work, freelancers, hemp work, non-traditional employment. And the evolution and the proliferation of the platform servicing this industry is extraordinary. When there's a lot of big players in this space that are looking to normalize this. Now, they're clear there's way more demand because, you know, most people are interested in a side hustle or looking at freelance as a full-time job because it gives them and affords them this freedom of movement and freedom of choice. Um, you know, I we luckily choose our clients. We work with people that we like to work with. I've been in situations in the past where I work with people I didn't like, and that wasn't pleasant. So I think there's a lot about freelancing that's attractive to that model. Yeah. Um, so there's huge kind of supply coming onto the market there's a lot of players out there that are standardizing the open talent world. So the demand side, a company can look at this massive pool of kind of open talent, freelance talent, and trust that they can fold them into their company and their projects in a way that moves projects forward at a lower rate and a more flexible rate. So I think that open talent is an enormous, I don't know, you can call that a threat or you can call it an opportunity depending on where you are. But again, it's about to the cost basis. So the reality is, Tim, there's no major company out there. And right now, it does not have a strategy around this. It may not be as overt or more as obvious because we are all over here fighting in the sandbox over not two or three days. But over here, there's major evolutions happening that are going to just blow that out of the water. So we, in Sway, we're kind of have our hands on both, like kind of like throw the messages back here. But let's sort this out because we have to get ready for the real evolution of the future of work. Open talent being one. Um, I mean, in myself, that's the way I use open talent. I have some I have core team members. I also layer open talent for particular projects. And to me, it's so attractive because the freelancers I work with that are based internationally, they're so hungry for the work and on top of it and professional and execute and speedy and turning it around. Who could you not look the style of work? But that kind of work for me is also not somebody that would be on my core team working on strategy with me. So different types of work I think today are kind of suitable for the two kinds of work models. But that's a really fast moving river, Tim. And I think we all have to start being more aware of that. Mm -hmm. um, so if COVID had hit 20 years ago, we would not have had tech like Zoom, collaboration software, ubiquitous home internet digitally stored and shared documents, you know, if it was the eighties, I'd be like, I can't work from home. I don't have my filing cabinet. I don't have my fax machine. Like it would have been a disaster. Um, this was all necessary to smoothly transition to work from home. What what technology do you anticipate will affect working from home in the future? Are things going to get better? And what do you see as the opportunities there? So, uh, like all those tech, all those technologies, like like you're saying, Zoom and cloud-based work. Um, systems think, so I'll, if I back up and look at this another way, I'm a huge systems thinker. I love the concept of design and systems thinking because it helps me breathe. Does it help me understand how it all works? And when I understand how it all works, then you can make a change. And systems thinking kind of will tell you that all these, there are people, Tim, working on gadgets and devices in garages in far-flung parts of the world. The future is already here. It is just not evenly distributed. Okay. And so what I mean by that is that technology has been around for so long, but it's been sitting on the edge and it's been kind of privy to a few people because only a few people really cared about it. So it was always already there. The question is, 
what happens in our world that tips that technology into the mainstream. And we're seeing this with AI. That's why people are clamoring all over in their heads on ChatGPT and variations of that, unlike they ever never have had before. AI has had several winters. AI has been around for some time. But what is it about us that's willing to kind of jump in and embrace these new technologies to move us forward? And how does that become mainstream? So COVID definitely tipped in all these ways of working, but we have been, once once our files and our work went to the cloud, we simply became disconnected from the physical workplace. So if we were here and our work was here, that's been like that for so long, but we were managing it like this, like they have to be tied together. And that's where the disconnect is, not technology, not the, the availability of the workflows, it's us being unwilling yet to trust each other at scale, which is why we continue to try to mash it together. But the world has been distributed for a very long time. So th this is touching on something. I'm trying to make this into a thing. Uh, Hampton's law, let's say, that the further away information is, the more useful it is. Because if you can get to it, then everybody else on earth can get to it and you can share it. And you can. So if it's in a filing cabinet next to your desk, it's all but useless. Like you have to actually physically pull it and, and share it with other people. So yeah, the cloud, I think, was a big factor for sure, uh, making... It's, I think it's overlooked. I think people probably attribute a lot of it to Zoom. Uh, you, you know, Zoom is the is the pretty face on this whole story. And in a way, it's slow. It, it was the most in, intuitive, easily accessible. I mean, we had WebEx and BlueJeans. There was a bunch of video channel platforms out there. But Zoom, I think, had that price point and yeah. an up, you know what I mean? It, they ate Skype's lunch somehow. I don't know how they managed it, but Microsoft, you slept through that one. That is true. I would agree with you on that one. Totally agree with you. So uh, you're right. We live in a digital age uh, and almost every problem has software intended to address it. And uh, we talked before the show and I brought up the notion or, or, or we, we sort of coalesced on the notion of distributed autonomous organizations or DAOs, which Wiki Wikipedia defines as an organization which is coordinated through a blockchain. I don't know if that's your de definition, but, but basically I think it's an effort to say that we will cede some of the day-to-day -day control over how we organize our work to a system, to a computerized system. Um, are DAOs science fiction, or do they hold promises as a model for hybrid organizations? These last few years, uh, you know, in developing sway in our work and keeping up with future work trends, I've had like whiplash. I've been like, what? No, like, how can this be? Is this real? There's been so much stuff that has come to light in these last handful of years, it's almost not hard to believe. One is the concept of a DAO, um, decentralized autonomous organization. And, you know, it was driven by that, it was driven again by blockchain. And blockchain is, you know, the ultra secure, brand new kind of technology. And the there are companies right now that are organized and operate as DAOs. You know, you don't hear of them. They're not like a Procter & Gamble putting out the toothpaste we use every day. They're much more discreet and specific kind of companies serving specific purposes. The premise of the DAO is fascinating because it is all about completely decentralizing decision-making. So most companies, they have an org chart and they operate in a very hierarchical way. you got the C-suite, you got the senior leaders, you got the mid-levels, you got the individuals, you got the board and customers. But in a, the premise, the value and the attraction of a DAO is like it's a flat organization. Is distributed decision making and distributed ownership. It's a complete reimagination of the capital system. So it's so wild 
how it's so representative of what the future can be. And I think it attracts people to that way of organizing a company legally and how would they produce because of that decentralization of decision making. And we all have autonomy and a stake in it. Look, at it's not easy when you have to get hundreds of people to make a decision to us moving forward versus two. It's a completely different world in terms of the practicality, but the premise of it, I think, is I, I just love the premise of it for that reason. And so it it does feel like a premise, like an asymptotic uh, limit to how 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 far can we take the idea of distributing the work, becoming hybrid, uh, mediating what we do through digital technology. What are the latter steps in that direction? What are the things that that companies can do to prepare themselves for that kind of future and take advantage of it? Um, I, I can't imagine there's a company that exists today that would disassemble and reassemble as a DAO. But I think there are new companies and initiatives and cooperatives that are beginning to rise up and form as a DAO. But for one to see the other, I think it's an appreciation for, and I'll give you my own example of this. Um, when I started Sway, uh, it would have been, Sway's a startup company. It would have been way more secure for me to go continue on a corporate career and get a paycheck once a month every couple of weeks and have this linear structured safety. But I didn't want to do that. And I didn't want to do that because I wanted to own my upside. Meaning all, when I felt like when I was a corporate employee, all the work that I created and did went into the company and the company owned it and they paid me. They owned all the upside. And I wanted to own my own upside for good or for bad whether it goes or it makes it or doesn't. But to me, I felt that was a meaningful way to position myself. And it's the same premise of a DAO. It's like ownership over your domain, ownership of the work you put in for the upside and you have to risk for the downside too. So it's a complete re-engineering of thought, but it's also a complete re-engineering, re rebalancing of risk and reward. Oh. And it's a very attractive proposition from that point. That's really interesting. I imagine... Well, I won't assume, but have you heard of Scott Galloway, an NYU prof? Of course, he said, yeah. I, I listened to him recently and he said, you know, the, the, it's a big mindset shift going from signing the back of a check to signing the front, oh, yeah. right? The, the, it's one thing to collect a paycheck. It's quite another thing to put your own money at risk. And so there is this uh, tension between, you know, labor and capital, right? But but what you're describing almost is, well, we all contain multitudes. Now you now you have skin in the game and you are working for the company. It's very different. Very different. I guess that's also the premise of employee stock options if you're to look at something that exists kind of fairly widely today. You know, you have skin in the game. And that is something that retains people and keeps people at uh, at a company. Um, but it's the trade-off, right, Tim? And I think that's why this view of flexible work is so important to people because they've taken back some of the power that they had traded for that paycheck. Traditionally, you owned me. You know, you told me when I had to come to work and you told me when I couldn't. Yeah. You know, we were owned in some certain uh, sizable capacity, um, but we were willing to trade off that for the reward that we got, whether it's safety and security in your mind that you had a job and you could pay your mortgage. Um, whether it's, you know, longevity and, and the sense of pride people have in being seen as a senior accountant, for example, whatever it may be. But I think that that, that relationship that we have to work, it used to be who we were. And I made that shift when I realized it wasn't. It is something I do to discover who I am. 
And that was a complete change in my world, my view on work. And I think that's what's happening for flexible work. People are like, I want to use work as not who I am any longer. It is what I do to discover who I am in different capacities. Yeah. Or or put it another way, I can adapt my work to who I am as opposed to who I am to my work. Yeah. See how you see how what a shift that is? That's like yeah. the back of the check to the front of the check. It's as significant as that. And Tim, it's not we're the same people wearing the same clothes, waking up every day with the same people. Everything is the same, but everything is fundamentally different. So we're beginning to shift our minds about how we see this. Thank you for sharing your time and and, and observations with me. This has been a fasc- fascinating conversation. I, I just wonder how people can get in touch with you. My uh, best way is to follow me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm very responsive to messaging LinkedIn, and I put a lot of my work out there too. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of LinkedIn. That's how you and I met. So uh, absolutely. My guest today was Denise Bruder. Thank you, Denise, for being on the show. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening to the Humanity in the Loop podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests of this podcast are their own and do not reflect those of their employer or any other affiliation. Humanity is not automatic.